Well, it's always good to dedicate our young ones to God. It's just a beautiful thing that we get to do, uh, to say, God, we, we are just stewards of what you have called us to do in raising our children. Um, I'm really excited about today because we start a new sermon series. Uh, and uh, there we go. That's what I'm talking about. I love the excitement. I've been hearing excitement all morning about this sermon series. So I told the preacher he better deliver today. <laughs> uh, we're going through the book of Hebrews, uh, which is historically a very complicated uh, I remember reading Hebrews as a kid and just and stopping midway through and thinking, what in the world am I reading? Uh, and stopping and just saying, all right, I'll get, I'll get to that later. Uh, but Hebrew, Hebrews has been uh, a love of mine for the last couple of years. I've just been, uh, God has just been opening up so much to me in this book. And I was excited to dive even deeper in it to share with you as we go through. We're going to be going through uh, from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 13. We're going to go from beginning to end together over the next few months, and it's really exciting. The name of this series is Jesus is Greater. Uh, and that, I love the title, and I love this book because of how the author of this book speaks to how Jesus is greater than everything. What he has given us, nothing can be greater than it. And every uh, throughout the weeks, we're going to see how the author, the writer of this book, continually shows us how Jesus is greater than so many other things uh, in this world. And so today we're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 4. And the title of today's message is Greater Than Angels. Greater Than Angels. Uh, but to give you a kind of intro into this book, because there's a lot of mystery about the book of Hebrews. Uh, a lot of people uh, miscategorize this book as an epistle or a letter. You know, if you read the epistle of Romans or 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, or 1 and 2 Peters, uh, these were letters to the church written as letters. So they have an introduction. They have a closing. You know, Paul always says, you know, um, I am uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ, you know, great, uh, uh, write this letter, sometimes with his own hand, somebody's doing it. He gives some kind of thanksgiving, some kind of greeting in the beginning, and then usually he goes in. Uh, to slamming them for whatever he's writing, you know, the letter about. And then he ends uh, the book with, you know, giving kind of final uh, greetings, saying who's with them, who wrote it, saying goodbye, can't wait to see you, kind of thing. We get none of that in the book of Hebrews because this is not actually written as a letter to a church. It is a written sermon. Uh, and so what we know from the book of Hebrews is that this was a sermon that the writer was actually hoping to come and preach to the church himself, but wasn't able to make it. Uh, so he wrote it down as a homily uh, to be read to the church uh, that he was writing it for. Uh, and I, I think that's really cool, because if you ever wondered, what was a sermon like, you know, in the times of Jesus and the apostles, then we get to read the book of Hebrews, and this is what a sermon was like back then. And just like any sermon... Uh, this book has uh, a little bit of uh, exegesis and a little bit of exhortation or exposition and, exor and exhortation, meaning uh, the, the writer of Hebrews and why sometimes it becomes so complicated. If you read it, you understand, is the writer of Hebrews takes a lot of Old Testament scripture and quotes the scripture and then explains it or um, exposits it. 
And then he uses that exposition. This is what that scripture means. This is what it means for us now. And then he exhorts the church. This is how we are supposed to apply it to our lives. And, and so this is going to be really fun as, as we read through this, getting to go through a sermon uh, from back then. What's also really interesting about this book is it is the most complex uh, Greek in the New Testament, uh, meaning it is this person was highly educated who wrote it. Uh, we get a lot of words that are seen nowhere else in the Greek in the New Testament, uh, and uh, a lot of words for the first time only used once. The, the, the writer had an incredible vocabulary. That means there's a lot of complex literary understandings of Hebrews. Uh, as I was reading through uh, some of the commentaries on this book, um, I'm not going to lie, I fell asleep a few times because I've never read through literary uh, breakdowns uh, in any of the other commentaries I read. There's just so much depth of how the author wrote. Uh, was incredibly complex, but also incredibly beautiful. Uh, and we actually don't know who the author is of this book. I think that's part of the mystery of Hebrews. I've heard some wild interpretations in my years of who wrote Hebrews that are completely off. Uh, I think a lot of people just assume Paul, uh, the apostle, wrote it. But it's very clear as you dig into it that he didn't. Um, but what is most likely from this book is that somebody... Uh, in the Pauline circle, that's what scholars call it, people who were close to Paul, somebody that was close to him or interacted with him wrote this book because we see some echoes of his theology in here and some other things, some of the people that are mentioned in the book are people that were also close uh, with Paul. But what I really love about this book, and I think it will speak to us a lot, is it was written to an urban context. So it was written to a city uh, a church in a city in one of the metropolises in the, in the ancient world uh, that was drifting away from their faith, that was kind of getting absorbed by the culture, uh, where persecution from the times was starting to get rough and was about to get even worse. And the church, the people of God, were contemplating, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? They had heard about Jesus. They had committed to Jesus. They had even been persecuted for Jesus in the past. But now more harsher persecution was coming. And the question that they were asking themselves was, is it worth it? And many of them have already began to drift away from God and from the teaching of Jesus. And, um, you know, the two cities that are in tension that most people think that this letter was written to, that this book was written to, uh, is either Rome or Jerusalem uh, because of all the things that were surrounding them and how the writer is speaking to them. There's a lot of context clues that are it's probably to the church in Rome or to the church in Jerusalem. But the fact is that they were about to go undergo harsh persecution. And before they were even going through that, they started to drift away and the culture was starting to absorb them. And so knowing all of this, we get to read and as we begin, you get to realize how this is vastly different than the other epistles, how it starts off not with a greeting, not who I am, wrote this, say hello, uh, into Thanksgiving, then into the body of the letter. But it starts off right away into the sermon, um, ready to go. So we're going to read starting off chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. You can read along on the screens with me. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So right away, the writer begins with this contrast of long, of, long ago versus in these last days. And he says, God has been speaking to us constantly from the very beginning of time to now. Guess what? God is speaking to us right now. And in the past, God spoke to us through the prophets. You know, any time that there was a word from God that had to come to the nations, it came through the prophets. But today... God speaks to us in these last days through his son. And the writer says that's significant because then he goes on to describe who is this son that today that God is speaking to us through. He says the son is appointed as royal heir. He is the mediator of creation. He is eternal or unchanging. He has eternal nature. He is a pre-existent glory. He is before all things. His glory outshines the earth, existed before the earth. And he is exalted at the Father's right hand in majesty. And after he describes who this son is, he then ends right here in verse 4. He says, all of that to say this, he is more superior than the angels. So here's a quick history lesson about the Jews uh, and what they believed and what this writer is talking about as we get deeper into this. Um, it was commonly understood in the Old Testament. If you uh, read the Old Testament and you read, you know, Exodus and, and beginning of the Pentateuch when Moses received the law, as you read it, uh, you don't see a lot of interaction with angels. Uh, but it was commonly understood from the Jewish people that it was actually angels who gave the law to Moses and were the mediator of the old covenant. And you actually see this uh, in Deuteronomy. You first see this in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where it says that angels were there when the law was given to Moses. And then in Acts chapter 7, you speed up, you know, to the New Testament. Uh, and right after the, Jesus ascends and Stephen uh, preaches one of the first sermons in the New Testament that we hear. And he says that the law was given by the angels. And then again, Paul the Apostle in Galatians says the law was given to the mediator Moses by angels. And so it was commonly understood uh, for the Hebrews that even though explicitly it doesn't say uh, when Moses received the law from God that angels were there, right after that in Deuteronomy it says that angels were the ones that mediated or gave it to him. And then it is understood in their cultural context that the law was given by angels. Now, this is important uh, because the author is about to make a huge point about uh, saying this. He's, he's saying that Jesus is superior to the angels. And the law, the point that he's about to make, the law, which is great, which they understood as great, which they knew as great was given by angels. And so here's this law, this, this covenant that was created, this law that was instituted that 
the Jewish people followed for over a thousand years, this covenant was great. This law was great. And it was instituted by messengers. It was instituted by angels. But the point that the writer makes here is that the gospel is even greater because it was given by somebody that is far greater than angels. Right? He is, he is saying, if you have listened to the angels, then you have to listen to this guy, Jesus. And I, I think about it this way. Um, you know, imagine that you're at work and your manager, whoever your direct superior is, gives you a task. You know, that here's your task for the week. Here's, here's a report I need by the end of the month. If you are halfway decent at your job and you don't want to get fired, what do you do when your manager gives you a job? You start to do it. Uh, so imagine your manager at work gives you a job. Uh, you, go, you go to your desk. You begin to crack away at it. But then the CEO comes by of the company and says, listen, I need you to do this, and it's important. What task are you going to have as a higher priority in your task list? The thing your manager gave you or what your CEO gave you? The CEO. That's, that's going to be the high task that you're going to go. And so the writer here is kind of saying that, is saying, listen, you've, you got a law that was great, and it came by angels, and that's, that's awesome. But you have a message that is now given to you by the Son. And this Son is far greater than angels, far superior to them. And so as you are beginning to drift away, and what was happening in the churches, they began to drift away, and some of them started to go back to the old covenant of the law. And I see a lot of us do this in the church today, is when our hearts begin to drift from God, what happens is we fall back on the religious law that we have heard proclaimed of, you know what, let me just do what I'm supposed to do. You know, let me try not to curse. Let me go to church. You know, let me, you know, help uh, some old person cross the street. You know, let me, you know, th this is like, this is what our, our task list is. And we walk away from the gospel and we begin to drift away into this religious, legalistic law zone. And this is what the church began to do. But the writer is saying here is, the law was given by angels, but this new way of living, this gospel, has been given by the Son. What you got before was given by mere managers. The CEO has come, and he has given you something, and it is far greater. Do not go to what the manager has given you. And then what he does after this is he begins to quote from the Old Testament. And so we read in verse 5, it says, the writer says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. 
They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? You know, if you remember in the beginning, right at the beginning, the preacher says four things about Jesus. He was appointed as the royal heir. He was the mediator of creation. He is eternal or unchanging. He has an eternal nature, pre-existing glory, and he was exalted at God's right hand. So now what the preacher does, he says, let me show you how Jesus is far superior to the angels. And he goes through each one of those points and he compares him to the angels. And he says, his name is greater than theirs, right? It, he says he was acclaimed as son. That is much greater than any of the angels have. His dignity is greater than theirs. He is worthy of worship. None of the angels have ever been worthy of worship. His status is greater than theirs. He remains unchanged. The angels, their, their existence, their substance changes for what is needed, but the son remains unchanged. His function is greater than theirs. He reigns at God's right hand. In every way, he is greater than the angels. And in verse 14, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are inherit salvation, who are to inherit salvation? His last point is this the angels are called to serve, but Jesus is called to rule. See the the preacher here is trying to show the majesty of who Jesus is to get a point across that what Jesus declared is greater than anything that has ever been declared before. Because as the church began to drift away, they walked away from the message of Jesus back to the law or the message of the angels. And so to first the, the, the preacher proves his point that Jesus is greater, but then he gives a warning to the church. And in Hebrews, there are five warnings, and these warnings are scriptures that people have grappled with for centuries because they are such tough warnings. I know as I read through Hebrews and I get to each and every one of these warnings, they put a healthy fear of God in me. And so this is the first warning, and I, I believe they progressively become stronger and stronger warnings. But here in chapter 2, verse 1, the preacher says this, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift, drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We must incline our ears to the message of Jesus and pay close attention to it. Right, the preacher says, if you disobeyed the Old Testament law and you knew that there was retribution for that, 
You knew that there was going to be a consequence. If you read the law, you see that for every place of disobedience, there is a other place of this is the consequence of this disobedience. So if there was a retribution for the law, how much more will there be if we ignore the son? The preacher is saying, if we know the Old Testament is reliable, and if it was sinned against, if it was disobeyed, we know that there was retribution, we know that there was a punishment. How much more by this message, if it is disobeyed, given by the Son, given by Jesus? He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect such a salvation? See, what I love about Hebrews is that it doesn't, the preacher doesn't pull punches. Now, so much of what we hear today is lavished in honey. But the truth, the reality of Scripture, the reality of Jesus is this. His greatness, his sacrifice, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his good news that he's called us to proclaim is not only is it greater than what was given in the past, but how much sadder will it be is if we ignore it? See, the implied answer here, how shall we escape? The answer is we won't. We can't escape. If we have heard the good news of Jesus, and we have We've had that news proclaimed to us. And we have seen the body at work. How can we escape when we walk away? We can't. This message was declared by the Lord. A greater messenger than humans have ever received. A greater messenger than any prophet could be. A greater messenger. Then it was affirmed, he says, by eyewitnesses. Right? It was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Right? He's saying, we heard this. From the people who were there, who saw Jesus walk, who saw Jesus perform miracles, who saw Jesus die, raise, and then came. Right? The, the greatest proof for the New Testament is not found in historical documents of the New Testament. Do you know that we have more proof for the existence and life of Jesus than we do for Caesar, than we do for Alexander the Great? But hear this. The greatest proof for Jesus is actually not in the documents. The greatest proof for Jesus is in the existence of the church. 
Because all of those disciples, all of those men and women who were with Jesus that we know historically died for the gospel, who would die for something that they did not see to be true? Paul the Apostle said if it wasn't for the resurrection, the gospel would be nothing. We would be nothing. There would be no Christianity. There would be no such thing as the good news because without the resurrection, we have nothing to believe in. Yet men and women perished. They gave their life for this message. They would have never done that if they didn't see with their own eyes. We are talking about, first and foremost, the apostles who it was documented how they died. Almost every single one of them was martyred either crucified to the cross or beheaded or starved or, or put in isolation or put in prison unjustly, all of these men and women who were killed, why would you die for something that never happened? The only thing that you would die for is something that you have seen and you have believed and you saw with your own eyes. And these men and women, the, the, the preacher is saying here, we got it from the word of the, the people who saw him, who walked with him. It first came from him himself. He passed it on to them. Then they passed it on to us, but he doesn't stop there. He says, we have heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So not only have we heard this proclaim, but now we have all, God has also borne witness himself to this through the Holy Spirit. Right, two weeks ago. We just had a testimony of somebody who got prayed for who was physically healed. This is still happening. God is still bearing witness to the gospel, to the message of Jesus Christ. Not only has the Lord proclaimed this, not only are there witnesses, the church, but now God himself still bears witness to this today. Through signs, wonders, miracles, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, the message of the gospel here proclaimed in Hebrews so far is this, that Jesus makes purification for our sins. He says that in the very beginning of chapter 1. That we cannot be purified on our own doing. How often we start off our relationship with God by saying, all right, I am going to start to get better. Do you know that you are starting off your relationship with God at a disadvantage when you ever start off with I? You know, how often I catch myself where I say, you know what, I'm going to try harder. Man, there is, there is a part in there that will never work out for me, and that is me trying harder. Right? If, if the... Gospel proclaimed is not Jesus makes the purification for our sins. And we are drifting away to the law. The second part is that he was elevated to sit at the right hand of the father in righteous judgments. In this world, you know, watch the news for five minutes. What you will see is constant unjust judgment. And we as a people lament when there are judges that make or juries that create unjust judgments. We celebrate when there is righteous judgments. But we can always celebrate as Christians knowing that there is a righteous judge who will never make an unjust judgment. 
First Peter says this, that he will judge the living and the dead. See, part of the good news is a righteous judge. This is not good news if that righteous judge has not made purification for your sins. This is actually hard news. But it becomes good news, proclamation that this is a free gift, that God has come in the form of man. He died and took upon your sin on the cross, rose, conquering sin, conquering death, and then ascended into heaven so that he can send his Holy Spirit to bear witness for this news. It becomes good news knowing that the righteous judge will sit in heaven and will righteously judge me for my sins. And that becomes good news because I know I have been purified by Jesus. says that he is the heir of all things, worthy of worship and savior of all. This good news is that there is no greater salvation that will come. There is no greater message that will ever be preached. And there is no greater hope that we can have but him. Jesus did everything that we needed done. When Jesus came and instituted a new covenant that every time we take communion, we celebrate God for this new covenant instilled with us. We know that this is a perfect and a holy covenant that no longer needs any more sacrifices, no longer needs the sacrifice of animals, any more blood spilt, but knowing that the perfect son, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect spotless lamb, sacrifice died once and for all so that it never had to be done again and raised once and for all, so that all those who might live may live in him. There is no greater message. There is no greater salvation. There is no greater hope that we can have. If you are going day to day and wondering, when will I be saved? When will my life come together? When will I finally have hope? When will I have finally something to look forward to? When will my life have purpose? When will I have calling? When will I have something that will give meaning to myself? Look no further than Jesus. Because in him, we find all the completeness that God was satisfied to give us. In him, we find the message that trumps every messenger. In him, we find hope that will never fail or disappoint. In him, we find a salvation that is not needing of any extra, is not needing of any addition to, is not needing of any plus signs. It doesn't need you, doesn't need me. It's not contingent on the government. It's not contingent on the president. It's not contingent on the church. It is him and him alone. And it does not need anyone else. The preacher in Hebrews warns us you have heard the perfect message you have heard it from the perfect messenger you have heard it from the greatest who has ever lived who is more worthy of all worship who sits at a greatest place that no one else can sit in who has a name that is far above every name what else could you want do not fall away sometimes I hear in my head, or I hear from others the things that we say, I will have more time. Scripture is clear, tomorrow is not promised for us. Sometimes we say, I can't because I doubt. 
And we forget about how Jesus invites the skeptic, like Thomas, who says, come and look at the holes in my hands and the mark of the nail in my feet. Sometimes it's, I'm not ready. Find solace in the fact that you never will be ready. Because it's not something that you will ever be able to do on your own. If we wait for the moment that we are ready, if we wait for the time, that I can finally say, I got it, then I would honestly be worried about what it is you are believing in. One of the great analogies I heard once about believing in Jesus came from Tim Keller. And he said, you know, a lot of Christians think that, or people think that you need to have some amazing faith level in Jesus in order to be saved. Uh, And he uses the analogy of an airplane. Who's afraid of flying? All right, same people. Have you ever gotten on an airplane? All right, a bunch of you. So... Imagine if you get on an airplane, you're afraid of flying, but when you get on that airplane, you have faith that the pilot is going to get you from point A to point B, right? But imagine if I walk in that airplane, I really don't, unless I hit some like crazy turbulence, then, you know, you hear all kind of manners of prayers coming out of my mouth. But when I get on a plane, generally, I'm not worried when I get on a plane. I have full confidence, full faith in the pilot that he's going to get me to where I am going to go. Does your faith, if you're worried about and you have little faith in the pilot, or my faith, if I have a lot of faith, matter? And if the pilot can get me from point A to point B, it doesn't. What matters is we got on the plane. And so what Jesus invites us to is to get on the plane. Let him worry about your doubt. Let him worry about your sin. Let him worry about you're not good enough. Let him worry about your tomorrow. See, what I'm inviting us here today is into a journey. The first journey is this journey in Hebrews, where we hear about how Jesus is greater. From beginning to end, the author cannot get enough but talk about how Jesus trumps everything that we know and that we have. And so I want to invite you, come along on this journey as we learn about Jesus. But right now, we have an opportunity to commit our life to obeying Jesus. Even if our faith is small, even if there may be some doubt, we have an opportunity to get on the plane and say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey you. And that is a decision that I am inviting you into. To say, you know what? I I have tried it my own way. I have tried it with willpower. I have tried it through X, Y, and Z. Whatever you've tried, you may have come up flat many times like I have. But when you give your trying to Jesus, that is when you realize how great a salvation he has for you. So I'm going to ask us to stand.